This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson. And this is The Enemies List. Our guest today is Ben Ginsburg. Ben is one of America's premier election attorneys. He knows the business absolutely backward and forward. He is cold-eyed. He is clear-eyed. He will tell you exactly uh, straight what the facts are in any in circumstance, whether you love it or don't. And I'm delighted to have Ben with us today because we're going to get some real insight on on how election law has become a real hot button in American politics. Ben is a partner at Jones Day. You have seen him on television any number of times talking about election law in the country. And I thank him very much for coming on the show today. Ben, thank you so much and welcome to the enemies list. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. You know, Ben, I was doing a little bit of reading last night preparing for this, and I, I went back and I reread your September 2020 Washington Post piece. Um, when Trump had been sort of exhorting his followers even before the election uh, with some pretty violent rhetoric. You seemed like you had a pretty strong insight that this was going to turn into something very ugly um, as the election results were challenged and and as Trump continued to sort of push the lie that he had been uh, cheated. I mean, the, the reality was is that the Trump rhetoric in the lead up to the 2020 election uh, really bore no resemblance or had any factual basis uh, in terms of what I'd seen in 40 years of looking really hard for widespread fraud, systemic fraud that could have changed the outcome of elections. And I spent a career working for party committees and campaigns. We always did very robust election day operations uh, to look for that fraud, check voter list. I'd done a ton of recounts, which is when you you kick open the hood of an election to see how it works. Mm-hmm. Our system is not perfect. There are 10,000 jurisdictions. It's not going to be of consistently, it's not going to be consistent with that many moving pieces. We made that policy choice because we believe in, in federalism. But at any rate, I knew that what Trump was saying did not square up with what I had seen uh, uh, with my own eyes. And so I thought the rhetoric that chipped away at one of the real foundations of the American democracy was uh, was really dangerous. You know, you mentioned that the lack of election fraud in the country. 
And I think if you ask Republicans today, and and from the, from the legal side, you searched long and hard for it, and it was it was always I think I think the same thing I saw on the operational and political strategic side. Election fraud was a sort of de minimis problem. It was it was one off onesie twosie things. It's never been a systemic, or at least in our lifetimes, a massively systemic system of election fraud out there. There's just there's no there there. That monster, that Bigfoot isn't out in the woods. So I, I think it's important to be clear about that. There are instances where there has been wide enough fraud to change the outcome of an election, but it's always been very local. It's not been national and the people have been caught. So I think it's important not to say there hasn't been fraud in our history and that we shouldn't be really vigilant in, in looking for it. At the same time, you have to be honest about the evidence which is what uh, Donald Trump was not doing and, and continues not to do. He's held to account right now on the election front on, on the two big cases. The Georgia case, which has wrapped up a lot of the attorneys who were drawn into his orbit or put into his orbit, however you want to describe it. I don't know, I don't know how you would characterize them. Uh, but a lot of the attorneys have now been charged alongside Trump in the Georgia case. And then the case that sort of stems from that is the January 6th case. What is your take on the on where that Georgia case is heading? You know, I, I know lawyers are hesitant to sometimes weigh in on other cases that are that are in play, but I'm curious how you how much you've been following that and whether you think it's a robust enough case to really, you know, lead to a, to Trump being convicted. Well, like any other case, I think you have to see what the evidence that the prosecutors present to know that. Rico Rico case under Georgia law is a very complicated enterprise, especially when you have so many defendants. I mean, I think there's still 15 or 16 left in the case. So, I mean, just the practical due process that each one of those defendants is due means that jury selection, for example, can go a really long time. Trying to uh, have each lawyer for each defendant uh, question any witness this, that's on the stand goes for a really long time. So it is a complicated case that now the prosecutor herself has said is unlikely, really unlikely to be resolved before uh, the November elections. Um, by contrast, you look at the Jack Smith uh, election interference case in Washington which has only one defendant and is therefore much more streamlined. But even there, you see uh, right now with the the question of presidential immunity uh, and request to fast track that with the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, sort of not at all certain that it's going to, to be held before the November election. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I I think 
and I'm not an attorney, and I, but I've counseled a lot of my Democratic friends in the last year, like, don't think you're going to have Donald Trump, you know, sitting in jail on election day in 2024. It seems vanishingly unlikely that, that the, the wheels are going to grind quickly enough to, to achieve that end. Yeah. And not only that, it is a trial. There will be a jury in DC, which is the case that can take place. Close your eyes. And imagine if there are jurors who don't agree with the prosecutor's case and Donald Trump is is acquitted or not charged or hung jury. I mean, there's there's an assumption on the left and among my never Trump friends who think, well, of course, he's going to be convicted. But, hey, it's a jury trial. And uh, that that means there's at least a degree of uncertainty about it. Yeah, I, I had a conversation recently with somebody about the documents case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case. I said, Fort Pierce, Florida is as red as MAGA gets. It's going to be hard to pull a jury pool that does that might not have one ringer in it that, you know, and, and maybe they're more sophisticated than me, but I can't imagine how they're going to screen for every single potential person who might go, I'm going to stick with Donald no matter what, and who treats the system more politically than than. As, as the obligation they have to a jury. Uh, I want to loop back on the Georgia thing for a second. How did so many of these people who ostensibly are attorneys get looped into the insanity of, of trying to, to, to pull off an election fraud like this, trying to pull off the, the overturning of a, of a free and fair election? Because it wasn't just Sidney Powell. It, it sort of like piled up and up and up with all these people you know, from my old boss, Rudy, on down, what is it that broke their minds as lawyers that let them think they could get away with this? Well, I don't think that's really the way they were looking at it. Okay. Um, okay. Look, there, there's a legal question, and then there's kind of a, a human nature part of the question. You know, as a legal matter, uh, lawyers are taught to defend and represent their clients robustly, but there is a line at some point. But like anything else in life, different lawyers see that line differently. And so I'm sure that in their mind, uh, they became caught up and convinced by the notion that the election was stolen Mm -hmm. uh, and that there was fraud involved. And everything they did was to try and robustly represent their client which is what I think their mindset was, Okay, uh, undoubtedly, because at one point or another, um, if you work in campaigns, you do get caught up in the absolute <laughs> necessity of winning. Of your, yes. And you, it is not the first time you have seen somebody go over the line, although we can say that in this case, it was a, um, it was a pretty broad line. Mm-hmm. I mean, the human nature part of it, which I think is is all of it, is, you know, uh, by all accounts, those who continue to work for Donald Trump uh, see him as a, a figure who you don't question much. You just go along with it and say, yes, boss. And so I think some people in the uh, in their in their role of trying to robustly represent a client didn't do the kind of step back that you ought to do to evaluate what you were saying and and doing. So I I, I would be surprised if any of the lawyers thought that they were perpetuating a cheat. 
I mean, I do think that they thought they were going after a unique legal theory that their legal training should have taught them or told them was over the line. But I don't think that um, they were probably saying, let's deliberately throw out the law with maybe a couple of exceptions uh, to that. I mean, there are some memos that have been introduced that would suggest uh, lawyers knew they didn't have a valid case and they should be appropriately uh, punished. Right. I mean, and what was it, a total of 62 cases that they brought in an attempt to do this? And I, somebody, I read somewhere that only a handful of those were like real red line, like insanity stuff. A lot of them were very procedural, you know, state challenges and whatnot, but they weren't all, but of the 62, they came up blank. They, they came up, you know, with, with nothing in the course of the 62 cases. Yeah. One minor exception in Pennsylvania. That, right. But a, right. Not, right. not determinative of the outcome. Right. Nothing that was going to switch. You know, a couple the, hundred the, ballots involved. Right. In a state Trump lost by 80,000. So in the course of that, you know, one thing that was sort of troubling me was we saw this sort of lawfare approach that, that they were going to, they were going to, spend as much money as they needed to throw as many attorneys and as many cases as they needed to. Do you expect we're going to end up with a similar set of legal? Uh, I mean, God, I hope we don't end up with a similar set of violent challenges. Do you expect this, the, the sort of legal uh, full court press that, that they did in, in 2020 to extend in 24, if the race isn't close or the race is close? Well, I think if the race is close, any candidate has a right to bring the cases that are brought. I mean, I, I I thought a lot of the cases they brought were not meritorious and they should have known that. But they had every right to bring each one of those 60-some cases, right? I, I, I don't quibble with that. I, I think that the real damage was done when having gone into the American judicial system, you accept that you can lose a case and you have to accept that outcome of the court. My uh, sort of problem with the Trump legal philosophy was not bringing those cases. It was not accepting the results of the cases after you bought into the judicial system to adjudicate a case. Does this speak to a broader contempt uh, among like Trump's followers by not accepting these things. And Trump himself, the conservatism I grew up in, you know, I, I started with Bush 41 as a young guy, but that conservatism rule of law was always a center pillar of that rule of law was always something that we at least paid, you know, lip service to. I feel like Trump's corroded that idea that the rule of law matters to the minds of a lot of Republicans. I think that's a fair statement. I, I think that there has been an abandonment of long-held conservative principles pretty consistently. Certainly the rule of law is one of them, and all these court cases demonstrate that. But in any number of other essential areas, the, the conservative principles that have always been a bedrock of the Republican Party have been abandoned, whether it's uh, something ranging from free trade to foreign policy and the footprint of the U.S. and even federalism uh, has been challenged. I do see uh, on the on the federalism point more and more 
you know, the, the old idea of Republicans was, you know, what's the, what governs local governs best. And now it's, it seems increasingly like they want to have a, what I call unlimited government conservatism instead of limited government conservatism. They, there, there seems to be an increasing either desire or intent to use the power of the state on individual rights at every level as a, as a sort of alternative to the old federalism philosophy. Yeah, look, the the epitome of that in the elections area was when the 26 Republican state attorney generals and 180 Republican members of Congress decided they were not going to accept the certified election results from a state. The epitome of federalism is recognizing that each state is responsible for certifying its results. And uh, you don't really have a principled way to like step in and say, I'm going to tell state X how to run its elections from state Y. <laughs> right. That degree of willingness to interfere at the state and in, and in the states, I'm seeing it now play out of a willingness of some Republican governors to interfere down into the local levels. The, the centralization of power was always something Republicans were concerned about before the, the era of Trump. And now it seems they're more eagerly embracing that. And that does put at risk, I think, a lot of the small C conservative principles of, of, of governance. And because of that, do you see this, this idea that, that a second Trump term would end up having vastly more problematic and challenging and risky political and legal outcomes for how people live in the country. I mean, I know the dictatorship talk is very heated right now because he's, he's partly fueling it, but what is your, what's your take on where we would end up in a second Trump term from the rule of law perspective, from the political sort of governance perspective uh, as we look forward? Just to be clear, all we're doing is speculating at this Of course. And you, you know, but you ought to pay attention to what Trump's saying, but you know that he's a, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric that uh, did not always coincide with his government governing philosophy. Right. Like we're going to reduce the deficit, <laughs> a good Republican principle, sure. not followed by the Trump administration or really any of the Republican presidents we may have. No, we've never for. really been good at that, have we? <laughs> not been, not been so good. We're, we're much we're much better out of power than than in power yes. uh, on, on talking about um, balanced federal governments. I think what you definitely do know is that there are uh, very well-funded think tanks who are putting a lot of time and effort into what a second Trump term would look like. And what they're saying is, sufficiently frightening to most people that even the Trump campaign and even Chris Lasavita and Susie Wiles yep. are telling those people to stop talking. Yep. Now, they may stop talking because they, they've gotten the word from Trump land to stop talking, but doesn't mean they've stopped thinking in the way they've now been talking. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned you know, Chris Lasavita and Susie, and we, we both know Chris Lasavita and Susie. They're both very effective operators. They know what they're doing. They're, they're bringing a, a level of rigor and discipline to Trump that I don't even know if the Biden folks have fully processed that they're facing a very different organization than they did last time. 
These are people who know how to play. Yeah, I, I think the Democrats and the Biden administration um, can't believe it's real. Right. And That's they right. can't. I mean, they have a, a you know, I sort of in my in my soundings with my Democratic friends, they would kind of refuse to recognize that more or less 50 percent of the country is more sympathetic to Donald Trump than Joe Biden right now. It is a notion that they are really, really reluctant to to embrace to, to accept as a reality of the country today. I, I think that's right, and 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 that sort of alternative reality that exists in the in the world of Trump supporters, I think, is something that you know. I, I know, speaking for myself, we've tried to penetrate that bubble a lot of different ways, and it's not really. You know, it's pretty hermetic. It's pretty sealed up. They don't. They don't. They're not really responsive to a lot of, of moments of of revelation or reason on that front. Yeah, yeah. But part of that is the is because of the way you just talked about it. Sure. The people who want to penetrate that bubble kind of do still see MAGA world as deplorables, which I think is a real mistake, and uh, all too much of the messaging is all about defeating as opposed to persuading. And it ain't working because the number of people who don't accept election results, despite two and a half years of fighting misinformation, disinformation, using the rhetoric, not work. It's why, you know, why I, the work I do over at Lincoln, we target a very narrow slice of persuadable Republicans. I, I, I don't spend most much of my day trying to bang down the door on on the hardcore side of the equation. Maybe I should have more time, but you got to do a resource management sort of approach to that at some point. I think all these efforts are really guilty of trying to, uh, to kind of beat sense into the deplorables kind of an attitude. Oh, I gave up figuring a while ago, but yeah, I get your instead point. Of, instead of, instead of figuring out, you got to like actually sit down and talk to them. And yeah, I, it's, it's and, true. And there's a national approach. It's a national approach because, frankly, that's where the money is for for groups. Uh, but but the solutions are all much more local than that, and there's yeah. been an unwillingness to embrace that. I do think that that as you look back at the various iterations of people trying to focus group away out of of uh, the cultural and emotional weight that the MAGA movement has inside American political life, that a lot of people have been stumped by the immovability of some beliefs that aren't that aren't real about Trump about Trumpism about America and and it's hard to it's hard for people who come out of professional politics to grapple with some of that on a strategic basis that there is a that the that the cultural power of the maga situation is much greater than we want to acknowledge yeah, I, I agree with that. And, but it's but that goes to the sort of lack of talking to MAGA world. You know, there's a in the election in the election administration community, there is a train of thought that says we cannot talk to MAGA people because that only gives more airtime to their views and suggests it's accessible. That attitude, that lack of outreach has not worked. It cannot be more obvious. But yet there is doubling down by sort of never Trump world and by Democrats to we're not going to hear what they say. We're not going to deal with them. I think definitionally the, the, the image in the minds of a lot of Democrats and a lot of never Trump Republicans 
is is what I legitimately believe to be one of the worst days of our modern history, which was January 6th. That cleaved the society more than people understand because it was there was a sense of, well, we won, they won't accept it, and now they're storming the gates. And I, I wish MAGA world would accept that that was not a great moment for them, that that was not a... That, that did not cover them in glory or make their case easier for a lot of Americans to swallow. And, uh, look, I think that the the sort of rewrite of January 6th that's gone on in MAGA world is, is being perpetuated by a few people. And what I'm not convinced about is that uh, that is generally accepted by MAGA world. And I saw some pretty recent polling data from a good conservative pollster that suggests that people are more inclined to accept election results than I would have thought, and which I think what you were saying suggests. So I I, I do think that there is sort of a a weak strategy by the anti-Trump people to paint all MAGA world with a broad brush. And I think that's unfortunate and only and only um, contributing to the polarization that's really hurting us. Yeah, negative polarization is a a trap both both parties find themselves in in our in our political moment. You know, on the on the Republican side, you hear you know every Democrat is a pedophile socialist in a lot of these places where the voices are loudest and most pointed. And on the on the other side, you hear that they're all insurrectionists who want to burn America down and establish a dictatorship. Well, let's take it. Let's take it to a much more fundamental level, which is the way the two political parties turn out their voters. Right? It is the fraud suppression. Two sides of the same coin. Republicans see fraud. Democrats see suppression. There is now a fraud suppression industrial complex of consultants and nonprofit groups who have their business model based on on really ginning up either charges of fraud and suppression. And I, they're, they're not necessarily moral equivalents, but they are political turnout equivalents. There's not nearly the evidence for either that would justify the sort of damning polarizing rhetoric that comes out of parties doing turnout. For sure, sure. Back back in my Republican days, we briefly represented True the Vote for some PR work. It was a, a a Potemkin village of of alleged fraud things. It was always like, "We'll have the report soon. We'll have the report soon." It's all this small ball anecdotal stuff. But you're you're so right about the 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 fraud industrial complex. It's it's fraud suppression industrial complex. fraud suppression. It's, right, it's excuse bipartisan. me. <laughs> <laughs> right, it has become like a big. It's a sector now, I guess, of the political economy in the country. Yeah. And, and, you know, it makes sense for each side to be in any polling place where there's, they think there will be a problem and to look at the whole election process, because in order for people to accept election results, which is really important, you gotta, you gotta verify. Right. And, and I think that it's, it's that small D democratic principle of, you know, an election is a, election is a battle of ideas, but it's also a battle of operations and people, Turn out their vote, and people should be should be watching for and, and alert to fraud or suppression. It strikes me that it's almost become like a a definitional part of it. It's like the messaging and the persuasion is is almost less important now than the operational side, which kind of 
it makes me feel a little bit of regret for the older days of American politics where there really were ideas being sort of banged around and, 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 and fought through. And now it's just like, a, I'm going to vote against the other guy. I'm going to vote for my guy. That's it. And we're going to go and make sure that nobody else is, uh, is impinging on, on, on my vote. It's a, it's a, it's a strange moment, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So, well, Ben, I want to thank you very much for coming on the enemies list today. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your insights. And uh, it's going to be a hell of an election year. Look forward to hearing what you have to say as we we uh, we go into a, a very big, challenging 2024. It will be an interesting year. Thanks for having me, Rick. Absolutely. Well, I got to say, I made my bones in my political consulting career in a big way, working in 1997 for a guy named Rudy Giuliani. He was the mayor of New York City. He was running for a second term. New York was five to one Democratic. And the guy was not always a good guy, but often a great guy. He was doing the things that, that the city needed. And on September 11, 2001, he did the things the city and the country needed. And the long fall of Rudy is about to come to an end. And I've talked about this a lot. He transformed himself from a complex, troubled guy into uh, an evil clown as the years have gone by. And I used to say, you know, if Rudy had just shut the fuck up before Trump and and gone out and, you know, done a public policy institute or whatever, when he dies, people would put up, they name bridges after the guy, they name high schools after the guy. But now he's going to end his career in poverty and infamy and maybe even jail, who knows. But Rudy has now decided that the multi-million dollar uh, ruling that has been leveled against him because he slandered and defamed and led to horrible threats and damage to Georgia election workers, that he's not going to testify in the case. An attorney friend of mine just sent me a note while we were recording another show, and he said, this is it. This is this is the doom. He will now be impoverished. He will now be, he will now be held criminally liable. Rudy's work for Trump, like everything else, proves the rule that everything Trump touches dies. And the tragedy of him using his his public profile and his history in service to Donald Trump's lies and Trump's attempt to overturn the election is a truly horrible end to a, to a life and a career. But he bought the ticket, and now he's going to take the ride. And that ride is to infamy and poverty and the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>